Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens. I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogart, the rabbi. And we are now on chapter 22 today, which uh, is a whole lot of whole lot of law, to paraphrase Led Zeppelin. Um, <laughs> uh, and and uh, we also, we were just, dear listeners, before the podcast came on, we were regretting that we do not have a, a female guest uh, this particular day because chapter 22 has a lot about uh, women and a lot of it is um, kind of gross. So uh, apologize, we will do our best to be new age sensitive men. Um, but we welcome comments and we get things entirely wrong. And, you know, I think our listeners can expect us to get things entirely wrong by now if they've been listening with any regularity. True enough. True enough. Uh, all right. Well, let's jump, jump right into this baby. Are you, uh, you ready to go, Daniel? Do you want to start? Ready to go. Okay. If the thief is seized, wow, this is a very different beginning than we're used to, right? Yeah, right. Uh, well, it's just a continuation of the last chapter, really. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. There doesn't really need to be a chapter break here, I guess. No, no. Uh, it might help find things, but nothing has changed in so, terms of theme or content. Why are we talking about this right now? Why are we talking about all these different situations in which you might need to know what to do? I'm just imagining myself sitting at the base of Sinai in the middle of the desert, having somewhat recently left slavery, trying to find a homeland, concerned about where I'm going to eat, uh, what I'm going to drink, where we're going. Leadership is a constant problem. It's falling apart. We don't have a society. And now you want to talk about the laws of someone breaking into your house when no one has houses? Uh, yeah, it seems a little odd, doesn't it? Um, it? It almost makes one think that perhaps this was written a little bit later than actually at Mount Sinai. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so how do we integrate this into the story? Well, I think one is let's give up the idea of time again. This is one of our favorite things to do, right? So, And it feels a little like a cop-out whenever we're like, I don't know how this fits. We're like, time has no meaning. I, I think a lot of our um, listeners, uh, when they spend enough time with us, feel like time has no meaning. So, you know. That's <laughs> true. And as a little side note, the, the first conversation I had with my wife is I asked her what time it, it was, and she said, what is time? And I thought, this is a person who I could love. Uh, so maybe a little insight into into me. Um, but at any rate, uh, I think the other piece is, you know, it might be good to reiterate that the composition of Exodus is a little bit of a mystery, right? So it could have been uh, written about an actual wilderness journey, but there is a, a theory that Carol Myers alludes to in her book, uh, that what you had is a bunch of hill people living in and around the land of Cana and they were all weirdos. And eventually they began to, to bond together, um, and call themselves Hebrews or strangers. And this, prophetic figure appeared among them who gave them a kind of value and meaning and religious system. And that over time, that system was elaborated with these stories of the Exodus. So it could be that. So it could be that they had houses all along. Um, but what do you make of it, Daniel? 
Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back to a lecture in rabbinical school. Um, so there's some cobwebs here. Uh, but, uh, I, that I, I believe it, one of the opinions of scholars too, is that the Sinai narrative, the giving of the law narrative, if you want to think of it that way, uh, was originally a separate tradition from the Exodus narrative. Uh, and that these mm-hmm. two get merged together into the grand Exodus story. But when you really think about it, at some level, they are totally separate bodies of mythology, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they really are as different as the Genesis stories, the stories of the patriarchs and the matriarchs are from the Exodus narrative, which are different yet from the David narrative. Uh, these sort of three right. great bodies of mythology, but you, you can break down the Exodus even more, I think. And, and Sinai and uh, Exodus really are different, different stories that we're weaving together here. Yeah, and that explains a lot of the inconsistencies, you know. So one question we might ask is, are these the rules and laws that a bunch of escaped slaves would come up with? And if sometimes our answer is no, we have an explanation for that. So maybe let's hold on to that question uh, of Uh who are these laws for, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then there is a larger question of what is the purpose of laws, right? So there's an interpersonal dimension. You could say purpose of laws to protect people and help them get along with each other because they all know the rules. But there's also a greater societal purpose, which is their definitional of community, of, of society. And uh, so one thing we're seeing happen here is the culture, the society of these people being defined mm-hmm. by these laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the relationship between law and culture, back and forth and back and forth. Huh. Yep. Yep. Uh, should we okay. get to the third uh, word here? So, but at any rate, right now we have a yeah, we have a tunneling a thief. Tunneling What's that thief. Guy up to? Thief is seized while tunneling. Wait, what is tunneling? What do we mean here? Any sense? Uh, okay. Robert Alter says this form of housebreaking by tunneling into the house is clearly imagined as a nocturnal operation. I imagine it means digging a tunnel uh, under the door or something. Uh, that's quite a project. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking Shawshank Redemption here. <laughs> yeah. Right. You get a spoon and a poster of a movie star. So go for it. This becomes – actually many of the laws in this chapter become uh, the laws of criminal justice. We talked last week about how some of those laws were tort, tort law. Uh, civil law, uh-huh. and for criminal justice within uh, the Jewish legal system, this becomes uh, seen as an idiom. That what does it mean? Tunneling. Tunneling is the moment when a thief breaks the barrier from the outside domain into the private domain. So uh, breaking okay. down a door, going through a window, whatever it is, that's the moment of tunneling. Okay. And it's something, does it matter that it's something secret that probably happens at night? Uh, interesting. So are we dealing with burglary is the idea rather than, uh, uh, what's the other one? My brain's going blank. Um, 
well, I home don't know. Invasion. Home yeah. invasion. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, something like burglary, right? Uh, where the expectation maybe is not to deal with people. Yeah. The reason I ask is um, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus's teaching prayer that he gives to his disciples, um, there's a phrase that I do not know in Aramaic, but it is translated in several ways. Sometimes it's translated as um, forgive us our trespasses. Uh, sometimes it's forgive us our debts. Uh, but I, I frankly have long preferred the idea of trespasses because it feels like trespass is something that we generally do to each other, right? Like we kind of we slide into each other's DMs metaphorically, <laughs> as the young kids say. You know, like like we we kind of invade each other's privacy in unwanted fashion, um, and it, you know, it used to be that that was something we thought about a lot in terms of polite society. It is now not something we think about very much, but maybe we should. So the, I, I think essentially that's the difference, right? Like you can have your private realm invaded in a way that is up front and out in the open and you know, it's being invaded and you can react to that, but having your private realm tunneled into in a surreptitious and devious manner is in some ways much more frightening because you don't, you don't know it's happening huh. until it's happened. Huh. Anyway, I'm, I'm going too far. Uh, no, I like that. I like okay. it. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, you know computers and yeah. fake news. And, yeah, right. Uh, all of these things. Right. Yeah. We are constantly oh. dealing with uh, people tunneling into our into our private domain. Yeah, yeah. And he's beaten to death. The thief. This is taken uh, as granted, right? If the thief is seized while tunneling and he is beaten to death, there is no blood guilt in his case. Seems reasonable, I think. Sure, one believes in capital punishment, but sure, okay, fair enough for this. Well, so, I don't think we're talking about capital punishment. I think we're talking about self-defense. Okay, self-defense, right? Because in fact, it's in the act of it. If the thief is seized while tunneling and beaten to death, okay, got it. Um, but then it gets complicated. Then it gets complicated. Actually, there's a a, a midrash here that I uh, did not include on our sheet, but I can go ahead and add it for any of our listeners who want to find it on the website. Uh, where there is uh, there is a, uh, a very skilled spearsman, someone who, who throws a spear, and someone is breaking into his home and he slaughters him. Hmm. Wow. Kills him. Uh, and the Sanhedrin, the, the great court, holds him guilty of murder. Okay. And they say, why is this? Because you had the ability to just pierce his limbs, but you instead chose to pierce uh, his side. Right. Okay. Uh, and actually this is, uh, this is a text that is used uh, for the court martialing of Israeli soldiers uh, when they have committed what amounts to uh, uh, individual war crimes huh. uh, or a, a acts of murder, I guess, uh, against uh, Palestinians. Not that this is wow. uh, necessarily a regular thing, but uh, this happens in every army, of course. 
Um, and uh, uh, this has become a core text that actually the training that you have obligates you to uh, uh, use only the force that is necessary and any force beyond necessary force if you are skilled in that um, means you are a murderer. That, um, in some ways, that seems like it might uh, run counter to our understanding. Now, I, you know, I was listening to something about this insane idea that we are teachers, and I think it was the weeds, which I know both you and I love. Um, and they were pointing out that um, we have somehow decided that brutal uh, force is necessary and acceptable within our culture. Like, you know, that it is okay for police to kill people. Hmm. Um, and, you know, do we want to also say that it's okay for teachers to just kill people like they can do it and get away with it because we've somehow decided it's necessary, but it seems like this, this particular text would say it is not necessary. Sometimes uh, it's unavoidable, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this text would say that uh, having stronger weapons creates a moral burden. Yeah, a greater moral, but not just a moral burden, creates a greater uh, legal burden and criminal burden upon you. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, right. What a what a different thing <laughs> we would have that the ownership of a gun itself self raises the punishment uh involved yeah. in misdeeds with it yeah uh yeah that would be a very different world and mindset um but it certainly seems the idea of that midrash yeah yeah it does all right go midrash uh, okay so, verse two good. yeah Okay. We're really making progress here. I think this is impressive. We are. <laughs> we are sailing along. You have a full verse. Okay. Uh, are we at if the sun rises upon him? If the sun rises on him, take it away. There is blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has not the means, he shall be sold for his theft. Okay. So I actually think we've got two different verses here. Uh, okay. It's, it's not divided up as two different verses. Uh, but if the sun has risen upon him, uh, there is blood guilt in this case. Yeah. Uh, that seems a completion of the previous verse rather than a part of this next piece. It does. It's true. So what do we mean by if the sun rises upon him? Uh, I just take it to mean morning, but perhaps I'm wrong. Meaning what's the difference? If he's still alive come morning? Uh, if, I guess so. I guess I was thinking like if he's operating out in, in broad daylight, but why that should. Uh, okay. But I, I thought it had something to do with what you were just saying. Like in the daylight, if you, somebody's breaking into your house, you have a better chance of aiming your spear and not killing him. So actually, I think Rashi agrees with you here. Rashi's take is that this is just a metaphor, meaning um, if it's clear to you that he is peaceably disposed towards you. Uh -huh. um, so actually, this is funny. This is another uh, law that was just used or another idea that was just used uh, in Israel. Uh, there was the case of uh, a, a Palestinian man who 
had a knife and was going to stab someone at a checkpoint. And he was taken down by an Israeli soldier who uh, was able to subdue him and then pulled out his gun and shot him and killed him. Wow. Okay. Uh, right again, that not something we don't, uh, in that sense, not so different from many of these police shootings that we hear right. about, right. uh, in the United States, but this became a core text and a core idea, hmm. uh, within certainly the Israeli discourse, if not the, the formal legal system, uh, right. Once you have subdued someone, then it is murder if you kill them. Yeah. If you kill them in the process of subduing them when they pose a threat to you, it is not murder. Right. Right. Because once you've subdued them, what you're really doing is is a revenge killing. You're killing them because they caused you fear. Yes. Huh, I never thought of it that way. A revenge killing for your fear. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so, okay. So, uh, but then it says... Uh, he shall surely pay, which would mean the thief. And if it's not the means, he will be sold for his theft, right? So it's got to be about the thief. Yeah. So that's why I think we're really entering into a totally new, it's not technically a new verse, but um, I'm a objecting to what the master writes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he must make restitution. So the thief, if he is caught, and this is presuming if he is not beaten to death. Uh-huh. Hard to make restitution. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Uh, so if the thief is instead caught, he must make restitution. If he lacks the means, he shall be sold for his theft. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have two separate sets of, of rules, one governing the, the homeowner who might capture the thief and one governing the thief himself. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, right? We don't normally, I think, in our discussions – put those two pieces together. Right. I kind of merging those, right? Yeah. But this makes me kind of wish that we did <laughs> you know, like uh, that. I mean, that would, that would be good if we did this to think like when a crime happens, um, suddenly both people are morally involved in some way. Um, maybe it's and not morally fair. and legally obligated in some way. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, you know, I, I would have sympathy to the idea, well, you know, that's not fair because I'm the victim. Like the crime is operated against me. But I think psychologically it is fair or it is at least true that if you are the victim of crime, um, you your life has changed, right? Suddenly you are involved in something you never want to be, both morally, psychologically, emotionally, everything else. Huh. Which is one of the terrible things about crime. Yeah. You know, it also having this juxtaposition where you are talking about the obligations the homeowner has towards the thief mm -hmm. is, right, it's a, it's a real reminder that being a victim doesn't negate the ethical responsibilities of the power that you do have. Right. Uh, which oftentimes I feel like that's what we do, right? We, we say, Oh no, I'm the big victim here. I don't, that's it. it it's a, a right. claim of moral purity uh, that comes with some sense of powerlessness. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the, 
the thing about that is you give up your agency, right? So not only are you victimized, but you also kind of ascribe to this idea that, that your power is continually is now gone. Your power to act morally or rightly is it has been taken away with the crime. And you just kind of willingly accept that maybe because it's easier than um than going forward as a moral human being who has to now deal with all of this. But yeah, I, but I don't think it. Pra- I don't think practically it's actually possible. I think what you do is you end up still trying to be a moral human being, trying to make sense of it, but you've taken away one of the the tools that could help you, which is your own moral agency. Uh, let's let's move on. <laughs> uh, okay. So we're at verse four. Uh, we are at verse four. Uh, when a man lets his livestock loose to graze in another's land and so allows a field or vineyard to be grazed bare, he must make restitution for the impairment of that field or vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems quite reasonable. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Back to agricultural law. If we move very quickly. Yeah. You know, this is, I, this is one of the core dynamics of the various very earliest prehistories of the land of Israel that before the Northern tribes and the Southern tribes even thought of themselves as being a part of one people, they were divided by the geography uh, of Jerusalem where basically everything North of Jerusalem is a uh, somewhat lush farmland with settled people. We're talking, you know, 4,000 years ago, 3000 years ago. Uh, And everything South of Jerusalem was, a desert is a desert uh, and has nomadic populations that bring their livestock around. And when there would be a drought, uh, the Southerners would bring their livestock north to graze on the Northerners' land. Um, and actually a number of theories say that uh, the original reason for the construction of Jerusalem was as a uh, city of defense to keep the northerners and their crops safe from the southerners invading when there wasn't enough rain wow Um, wow is that crazy yeah yeah it is crazy and and but david was a northerner right wasn't he southerner think about uh, the earliest stories Uh, of david uh right he's a shepherd in the south with his brothers and sisters um and it also helps to explain right we get these various ceremonies where david is anointed as king yeah, as he consolidates the various areas, but it explains why it was such a big deal for him to conquer Jerusalem, because once Jerusalem was conquered, the gateway to the north was open. Was Saul a southerner too, or was he a northerner? No, I do not believe Saul is a southerner. Okay, so so that's interesting. So in that entire narrative in First Samuel, there is this. It is for Samuel, right? Um, there is this aspect, there's this political aspect that I never knew anything about. <laughs> That's pretty great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The politics <laughs> of the Deuteronomical histories uh, are pretty incredible. Um, pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when they present the people of Israel as one people, which they do in, to a certain degree, in some ways, it's, that's not entirely true. In some ways, the the struggle between Saul and David is the struggle between the south and the north. Yes. Yes. Wow. And the other piece to understand is that uh, for the northerners, David was not a unifier. He was an occupier. Wow. 
so, I mean, go and read the David Bathsheba, Beth, Bathsheba, Bathsheba, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, narrative through that lens, right? And she's married to a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite, who is yeah. as moral and noble as could be, right? He's an outsider from the uh-huh. north. Um, in the southern king, who is lazy and sleeps in, and at the time when kings go out to war, he's hanging out and looking at women bathing on the roof, uh, Whoa. is an indictment of a southern king by the north. Whoa, this is so great. Like, I had no idea. Uh, uh, I've got a whole piece for Exodus yeah. 32 when we get there, too, the golden calf. Okay, uh, along these same lines? Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's the politics of the priesthood after the Josianic reforms that said the only place you could offer a sacrifice was Jerusalem. Right. Think about the economic impact on all the other priests. Yeah. Yeah, and shrines and, and everything else. In the Jerusalem priests claim to come from Aaron. Right. So the indictment against Aaron is really an indictment against those who would say that the real priests are the Jerusalem priests. Wow. That okay. Well well okay, we're we'll we're, there soon. We're getting ahead. On that. We'll be there soon. This is but dear Lister, I am now just so excited. Okay. Uh of course I'm kind of a geek for these things, but that's all right. Uh okay, so Anyway, so we that's why we have this whole agricultural thing. Verse 5, should a fire go forth and catch in thorns, and stacked or standing grain or the field be consumed, he who set the fire shall surely pay. Should a man give his fellow man money or goods for safekeeping, and they are stolen from the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall approach the gods, again, Alter says gods, plural, to swear that he has not laid hands on his fellow man's effects. So maybe we're dealing with uh, uh, a law that goes back to a time when people had household idols. Again, thinking about yes. uh, 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 Rachel, Rachel, Rachel Rachel, Rachel. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So we've got a lot of, we, we've got more laws that all seem to focus on a notion of taking responsibility for the power that you have, right? That seems to be the theme here. You start a fire. If you don't do what's necessary to contain that fire and it spreads to someone else's land, you are responsible. Uh, If you borrow something uh, and it gets stolen, there are responsibilities there. Yeah. In terms of what we were saying, though, I, you know, at the beginning of this episode, I said I thought part of this was like, how do you make a people? You know, how does law help to make a people? But what I didn't understand entirely is this is law trying to make two people from the north and from the south into one in part two, right? So you, so all this agricultural law, um, according to what you were just saying, is about that. So, so some of that is about how you date this stuff. Uh, I, I find uh, the most compelling research these days uh, says that the Torah as we know it today, the five books of Moses, are a product of the Babylonian exile or the early post-exilic community. Uh, right. And in that sense, the whole Moses story is really the story of the Babylonian exile. It, it's a different exodus that we're talking about. 
Um, and, uh-huh. and actually, I think this is pretty compelling because it explains why Jewish identity mm-hmm. survives in the Babylonian exile when dozens and dozens of other peoples who experience the same fate don't. And the answer is that we had a story already about having been slaves and having been freed by our God. Um, and you tell that over and over again. Um, so yeah. in that sense, who knows, right? Is this law that predates the exile? Is this normative law that's put in place for after the exile? Um, and after the exile, there would no longer be a real distinction between Northerners and Southerners. Okay. Uh, except for the Samaritans who are Northerners who are left behind, basically. So what's interesting is, you know, most contemporary scholarship would say that it's only actually a very small uh, percent of the population that's transferred into exile, really the cultural leaders and the political leaders, um, the people who tell the story of who you are because then you know three generations later people don't remember that story anymore they're a different people um yeah so in this in this telling of it though when uh, the people return from babylon or from persia by that point and actually they're sent by the persian uh emperor to come uh, and establish law uh by the time they get back, it's only, you know, a small percentage of the people who even went into exile who return. And so it's actually a a moment sort of of cultural colonialism, where the exiles come back and impose this somewhat new religion of Judaism and the laws that go with it on a population that Mm -hmm. certainly doesn't remember the stories the way that they're now being told to them. And many of them don't even remember the stories. Yeah. And these are the stories that kept the returning exiles together as a people in exile. So they've become more and more and more important. Um, and so uh, you can just, you can just imagine like the cultural conflict, you know, why exactly. is this important to us? Because we didn't go into exile. Well, yes, but now it's your story no matter what, because we need it so badly that it's got to be there. Yes. Yes. Okay. Dear listeners, I bet you did not know when you started to listen to this episode that we would be going this far afield. Uh, I think actually anyone who's listened with any regularity would know that we would be going this far afield. Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, let's try, let's try and bring ourselves back to the text. So. Uh, okay, because we are about to get into the, the, the stuff that deals with women. Um, or we're pretty darn close. So what verse were we at? Uh, we are on verse nine. Does that sound right? That's yeah. Uh, should a man give to his fellow man, a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast for safekeeping and a die or be maimed or carried off with no witness. There shall be an oath by the Lord between the two of them that he has not laid hands on his fellow man's effects and the owner shall accept and he shall not pay. Uh, so worth putting out here, uh, because Alter translated the previous verse as gods that you would go before, yeah. uh, yeah. that here we're getting the proper name for, uh, what becomes the monotheistic deity, yod heh vav which here is translated as Lord. We've got a uh-huh. different word here, and we are talking about the particular deity, so there's no chance of translating this as gods. Right. Okay. Um, and and I, don't, I don't really know what Alter's reasoning is, so... Um, you know, I'll tell you what, what makes sense to me in Alter's reasoning is, what else would it be if you're going to go before the god... It makes sense to go to a physical mm-hmm. place in your house and make a 
Oath. Okay, so continuing with verse 11. If it indeed be stolen from him, she shall pay its owner. If it be torn up by beasts, he shall bring in evidence. He shall not pay for what was torn up by beasts. And should a man borrow it from his fellow man and it be hurt or die, its owner not being with it, he shall surely okay, pay. Okay, that makes sense. Right? You borrow my car, you crash it, it, you're in charge. Right, exactly. If its owner is with it, he shall not pay. So that's interesting. I could be driving your car and you could be in the passenger seat, and if I crash it, I don't have to pay you. Uh, yeah, if what do we he, think of the morality of that? <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I would find that somewhat reasonable in our time too, because I guess one could say, uh, we are responsible for our own stuff. Right. And, and the fact that you are there means that you still really have a zone of responsibility surrounding the driving of this car. Seems reasonable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if he is hired, he gets his hire and should a man seduce a virgin. So, so hold on. If he is hired, he's entitled to his hire, meaning that, uh, or at least Rashi says that this means if you've, if I have rented the car from you yeah, and an accident occurs, I am not liable. Interesting. Uh, because you have already received a financial benefit for this. And so that is a part of why I am paying you. Interesting. Try telling that to Avis. Try telling that to Avis. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we slide away from that little one in our culture. Well, that being said, hold on. Think about this for a second. It's not quite a perfect parallel. But, yeah, the the expectations if I crash a rental car versus if I crash your car that I'm borrowing are different, I think. Okay, and now we're going to get to the to the disturbing parts. Yeah, and actually, I want to think of these next three verses. We're at verse fifteen here. Uh, I want to think of them as one pericope, and I, I don't think they naturally feel that way. The third one feels different. Do you? Uh, would you like to read them together, and then we'll? Uh, yeah, let's read them all. Uh, okay. If a man seduces a virgin for whom the bride price price has not been paid, and lies with her. He must make uh, her his wife by payment of a bride price. If her father refuses mm -hmm. to give her to him, he must still weigh out silver in accordance with the bride price for virgins. You shall not tolerate a sorceress. Um, okay, I think you can immediately see why uh, uh, my inclination was to say that the third verse doesn't necessarily match up with those first two. Yeah, yeah, it seems a little offhand. This becomes one of the three ways that Jewish law says you can initiate a marriage. In uh, those three ways are an exchange of property. Think a wedding ring. Uh -huh. uh, sure. The uh, <laughs> signing of a formal wedding contract, a ketubah, think wedding license. Mm -hmm. This is still a part of every Jewish ceremony. Uh, and sex with the intention of marriage. That in and of itself okay. constitutes a marriage according to Jewish law. Okay. Okay. So why then? Why are you putting – because those first two verses are not actually all that negative, right? This seems – this could be about justice in a way, right? Like you can't sleep with somebody, get her pregnant, and then just go off on your merry yes. way or even risk getting her pregnant. Like if you sleep with somebody, 
you are responsible for them in some way. You at least owe them a bride price and they can choose not to be your bride. So they you don't get to choose there, right? And right? That, that I think is maybe the, the other thing we need to say at the beginning that, right, that this is talking about a situation in which a woman is fundamentally property, um, right? Let's Let's not forget also that we're moving directly from the section about what happens when someone damages your animals to what happens when someone damages your daughters. Okay. You're right. I, uh, yeah, I, I totally misread that because it's the father who gets to choose whether to father who gets to choose. Yeah. Um, so we're not talking about a world in which a woman has any agency over herself, particularly not her sexuality here. Her sexuality is owned by the men around her. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, uh, if a man seduces a virgin for whom the bride price has not been paid, meaning she is not already engaged to someone else. Yeah. Uh, in Rashi actually, and maybe this is a little bit of an apologetic, but for him, he, he seems uncomfortable with the idea that the word for seduction could mean something like rape. Hmm. He doesn't have a word like rape. Uh, it doesn't exist to him. Uh, but he clearly has an understanding of something all around that concept. And so he's very, uh, very clear in his apologetic here that what we're talking about is uh, a verbal seduction that has happened. Interesting. Uh, they have fallen in love with each okay. other. Uh, again, I think that's an apologetic to the text, but it is the normative Jewish apologetic. Okay. Um, um, and that, and then that is why this no witch shall you let live, or as you have sorcerer connects with them, because what you have is a set of rules for powerless women. And then you have a rule about powerful women, which is kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's, that's the question that Rashi immediately raises. Does this apply to, uh, uh, what do you call him? A male, a sorcerer? not just a sorceress. And he says, uh-huh. absolutely, this applies to men and women, but everybody knows that the vast majority of evil sorcerers are actually sorceresses. Huh. Uh, right, which we know throughout history that powerful women and women who go against the grains of society are often uh, persecuted and charged with witchcraft. Right. Um, and it is, it stands out here. Why are they using... The feminine word, uh, that ah sound at the end makes it feminine. Why are they using the feminine word for the uh, generic magic worker when almost always in Hebrew, it is the masculine word that you use for the generic? Um, And that's Rashi's answer. Yeah, okay. Um, So really, this is kind of irredeemable from our from our contemporary contemporary progressive mind point. Like it's very hard to see how we could say that this was something that we would want to admire or uphold. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, without creating an apologetic so deep that you've left behind the original, I think. Yeah. Um, okay. But that, you know, so I'd be interested in your thinking on this and maybe we should save this for another day as we're already far in. Um, but mm-hmm. what do we do with these problematic texts? How are, what are we supposed to do with texts in in our holy documents that are feel abhorrent? 
Well, I mean, Brian Taylor, who is a uh, author on contemporary prayer, uh, his answer is that you kind of try and have a contemplative mindset towards them. That is, you encounter them, you know that they're there, um, you don't worry at them too much, because the question you're asking for any piece of scripture is, does this um, speak to me spiritually? Is there something in this uh, that can operate as a gift to my life with God. And uh, texts that seem abhorrent or that come out of the past, you simply say no and you move on. Uh, you don't get too exercised hmm. about it. Hmm. I don't know if that's a very satisfying answer. <laughs> I, wanna, I, I just want to be clear. I'm not sure that's a very satisfying answer, but uh, it's an interesting answer. It's not one you often hear because I think often our – our impulse is to come up with some kind of apologetic or talk our way around it in some way and to, to think, well, we don't have to do that. Make it is, is liberating yeah. in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, it also raises the discussion, you know, in the, in the same way yeah, that that's the me too movement in seeing, uh, for men seeing our, mothers and sisters and friends and partners and family members share these stories that they have experienced. They're awful stories. They're hard to hear. And it's important that we hear them. Um, and maybe there's a piece of that in here too. Maybe this can be a reminder to us of the work we've still got to do. Yeah, I mean it, it, that fits with what you said. You know what your what your teacher told you, which is the Bible is yeah. about what not yeah. to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we can look at this law here and be like, "Yep, that, that not goes to do column." I like to do column. Yeah, pretty yeah. solidly. So, yeah. okay, let's keep going. Okay. Whoever lies with the beast is doomed to die. So no bestiality. Whoever sacrifices to a god except to the Lord alone shall be put under the ban. You shall not cheat a sojourner, and you shall not oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay, I actually want to talk about 19 here for a second. Okay. Because we don't find that as a general rule hardly anywhere in the Bible other than Deuteronomy. Excuse me, anywhere in the Torah other than Deuteronomy. As a general rule, there are no prohibitions uh, against sacrifices to other deities outside of Deuteronomy. Uh, and what that seems to be about is that there is a later reform by uh, King Josiah and those around him uh, that institutes something called mono-worship. It's not quite monotheism, uh, but it's uh, only being allowed to uh, offer sacrifices to one deity within the bounds of uh, the state. And so this is a sign that we're getting a little bit of uh, a deuteronomical approach here, uh, that maybe we have left what feels like uh, purely priestly material and have actually gotten a little bit of deuteronomical material, which will make sense too as we enter into uh, a more moral section. You'll, you'll feel the turn in this chapter. It becomes about morality instead of about law, which of course is related to morality, but, but the contract law is yeah. what we've been dealing with. But uh, certainly there are stories about, I mean, Elijah and the priests of Baal, isn't that not a story about mono worship? 
that seems to be a story about that. That's a story that seems to almost approach monotheism. Yeah. Right. Um, but as a general rule, I think one of the ways you can think of the prophets is that they are a few generations ahead of their society. That's their role. They are critiquing the status quo. Um, and mm. so, you know, long before a theology arrives uh, for the Deuteronomical school, which is coming out of Jerusalem, coming out of, uh, we're talking about 620-ish right now, BCE, by the way, um, mm-hmm. that long before a theology would become the normal ruling approach, uh, meaning it's, you know, made its way to the nobles and the priests and the scribes and so on and so forth, it begins as an outside critique from the prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, so we have the idea of running around. We just don't have it uh, enshrined yet. Yes. Until we do the Josiah exactly. reforms. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, so we get verse 20, which is okay. uh, considered to be the central message of Judaism. Yeah. Yeah. There, finally, we get on footing that I think uh, we, you and I could both be pretty happy with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I love, this is the most commonly repeated commandment in the Torah. 36 times you get some version of this. You shall not oppress uh, for you were strangers. But I love the morality of this because it's not because I'm your God. It's because right. bad stuff happened to you. You're obligated to prevent it from happening to others. Uh, which I think goes right. to the overall theme we've taken out of this chapter too, which is that, uh, Power creates ethical responsibility. It doesn't create uh, the ability to do what you want. Yeah. Power creates responsibility, not freedom. Exactly. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Yeah. That, that might, there's a name for for this episode. Um, uh, And actually Spider-Man would agree with us (laughs) entirely. Um, Okay, so no widow nor orphan shall you abuse. If you indeed abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely hear their outcry, and my wrath shall flare up, and I will kill you by the sword, and your wives will be widows. Do you see what I mean by this feels moral instead of legal now? Well, right, and that's almost uh, the inverse. You know, it's not just you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, so be good to sojourners. It's don't abuse widows and orphans, or guess what? Those you love will be widows and orphans, right? It's not just retrospective on the past. It's like one reason to be moral is bad stuff could happen to you in the future, and you will want people to behave towards your loved ones in a certain way. By the way, that's another classic trope of uh, Deuteronomical thinking, Uh, reward and punishment for the observance or non-observance of the commandments. Um, Hmm. Okay. Uh, Which is something that also I think we have some trouble with in in this day and age. Yeah. But uh, if you, if you take it out of the, um, the realm of cause and effect with agency, if you remove the agency from it all, I think there's some truth to it, right? If, if you want to live yeah. in a society where your family can be safe, you have to live in a society where other families can be safe too. Right. 
that's very true. There is also some danger to it, which is it assumes that if bad things happen to you, it's because you've been unrighteous or bad, right? So there's there's uh, some good societal truth yeah. there. There's also some moral hazard. Yeah, yeah this becomes an explanation amongst the ultra-Orthodox for the Holocaust, that the Holocaust happened because of Reform Judaism in Germany. Wow, wow. And that also is uh, a prophetic explanation for the exile itself, right? It yeah, is. read the book of Lamentations. It doesn't blame the Babylonians, it blames the Jews. Nope, it sure does. Okay, verse 24. If you should lend money to my people, to the pauper among you, you shall not be to him like a creditor. You shall not impose interest on him. So Rashi actually objects to this translation. Oh. All right. The the first two words, im kesef, uh, if money, and then we get the verb after that, but that word im meaning if, uh, mm-hmm. almost always means if. Rashi says this is one of two or three examples in the entirety of the Bible that it doesn't mean if, but when, and in doing so creates an obligation, a commandment that you have to loan money to those who need it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, because this goes on, verse 26, for it is his soul covering, it is his cloak for his skin, and what can he lie? Uh, and so when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. We're, we're really creating something of a universal set of rights here, right? That access to capital is in and of itself a right. It's not mm-hmm. something that is earned. It is a right that you have access to capital. Uh, and it is a right to have certain, uh, baseline human needs. Right. And, and you have a right to have your neighbors, uh, be, be involved in those needs. Yeah. Maybe that's a community, right? You know, being part of this community means I have a right to help when I need um, it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this verse 25 really stands out to me. If you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, right? What's the point of a pledge if it's, or what's the point of collateral if you don't get to keep it, if they don't pay up? And yet the yeah. answer here is no, you may not take someone's base needs from them no matter what. Right. You cannot deny you cannot them deny housing. housing. housing yeah, I mean, it would rent. be hard to derive housing and food and um, access to health care and all sorts of things from this. Right, right. And again, it's part of that responsibility, too. Just the fact that you have, that you own property or own debt uh, requires that you be responsible for those Around. Yeah, and you know this uh, this all connects to that line for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That that word stranger, ger, uh it fundamentally means the vulnerable. It's the person with less mm. status or without status. Uh and those people who are vulnerable in our society, like the ger, like the orphan, like the widow, uh have extra rights because of their vulnerability and extra oblig and everyone else has extra obligations because of their privilege. And yet it's disappointing that that doesn't apply to young women. <laughs> and it does not apply. Yeah, exactly. This is a society where it only applies to people, not women. Right. Um, uh, meaning that they don't quite think of young women as people. Exactly. Perhaps. Exactly. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And and does that mean maybe personhood is is given in marriage? Like you you become you can only be a widow and get those rights if you have been married. Uh, so marriage is maybe an assertion of personhood for a woman. Yeah, in in some ways, it's almost widowhood is an assumption of personhood. It's the most vulnerable category of it. But oh, even in marriage, a woman is owned by her husband effectively in this model. Yeah. Huh. Um, right. And then we get the daughters of Tzolofachad. Uh, uh, I don't know how you say that in English. The The guy who... Uh, dies and only his daughters are alive and the daughters appeal to Moses from the book of Numbers, uh, that they should get the inheritance. It shouldn't go to their cousins. And they win. I don't know that story. Oh, great story. I, I named one of my daughters after one of those daughters, Noah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So you have instances where, where young women assert rights and power and responsibility and are listened to. But it's only in the absence of men who could take rightful ownership over them. Okay. Right. Again, I hope it's clear by rightful here. I'm not suggesting this is in any way. I'm, You're yeah, not, I'm not in this. any level condoning yeah. this. Yeah. I'm uh, trying to explain um, a deeply problematic Thank society. You. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, uh, so we're going to mix the good with the bad here and and see it both. Uh, where did we stop? Uh, 27. You want to finish this off? Okay. Sure. You shall not vilify God. You shall not curse a chief among your people. The first yield of your vats and the first yield of your grain you shall not delay to give. We have returned the to the priestly. Right, you can yeah. feel it. We've left yeah. the Deuteronomical content and we're into traditional priestly content. <clears throat> right, because here we have the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Um, uh, thus you shall do with your ox and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. And consecrated men you shall be to me. Flesh in the field torn by beasts you shall not eat. To the dog you shall fling it. Um, that, that verse 28 about the firstborn of your sons, you and I have had this discussion before, and I think I just have the wrong idea settled in my mind, but is that the famous Corbin of Jesus's time that the, the firstborn is owed to the temple and you have to pay a little money to redeem? So him? continues to, uh, continues to exist, at least in the Orthodox world of Judaism today, uh, to understand this, you have to go back to the non-Jewish world of uh, the neighbors of these Jewish towns, uh, you know, go back, I don't know, 3000 years or so. And there's a significant amount of human sacrifice, uh, of firstborn sons. And if we look at the uh, rules surrounding this, it is that the sacrifice is the firstborn male fruit of a mother's womb. So if mm -hmm. someone has an older sister, and they are the first boy, they do not count because they are not the first fruit of the womb. Uh, if okay. uh, the mother has had a miscarriage, it does not count. Uh, and actually, if the family comes from the priestly lineage, the Kohans, it doesn't count as well. Uh, but if not, that firstborn male son was often offered as a human sacrifice, literally offered up to the gods. And this is what the sacrifice of Isaac is playing on in some ways, too. Right? Uh, yeah, there's certainly a connection here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right in the, mm -hmm. the explanation of that, uh, that text, I think, is that Abraham and Isaac is a message that Jews don't do this. 
Um, right. Right. Uh, but so anyways, this tradition uh, is changed in Judaism. And you can look at sort of the sa- story of Samuel's birth and call to see something of an example of this. And instead, it becomes the, the person who normally would have been sacrificed in the other cultures. Uh, that person becomes a worker at the temple. They belong to God mm-hmm. in a very different way. Um, and then eventually, even that is replaced with a fee that is paid to the temple. Uh, and today there mm-hmm. continues to be a ritual. It's called a pidyon haben, where if a, a boy is born who fulfills all of those, uh, categories, there's a, now it's just a fun little thing where you find someone whose family says that they, uh, uh, derive from the priests and you give them a little, uh, a coin and it's a, uh, now it's a, you know, sort of fun celebration. Um, but yeah, that's the sure. story. Okay. Uh, well, dear listeners, I would love to delve into that even more, but we are at an hour, so I don't think we can. <laughs> uh, but we will probably return to it because it is a motif. And I, Daniel, um, am interested in the fact that in Genesis, it's often the youngest son who becomes the, the patriarch or the hero. Um, and what how that plays with what we were just saying about yeah. the, the sacrifice of the firstborn. But but we can't we have do that to give right people now. A reason to so, keep listening. Uh, fortunately, always, always. Uh, okay, dear listeners, thank you for listening to Lost in the Wilderness, uh, which is produced by Daniel and myself, and made possible by Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. It's part of Exodus a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Um, And I'm going to, again, first plug uh, the cathedral event. Daniel and I will be trying to uh, live podcast from the cathedral next Wednesday evening. So the podcast will probably come out on Thursday or Friday because of that. Uh, But then I also want to plug the colloquium, the last event of the Exodus year, uh, which will be on April 7th at All Saints Church. And we'll have Terrence Fredheim and Carol Meyer and Bishop Reinthal and Mark Stevenson. Of- so that's those are my plugs. Daniel, what have you got? I have no plugs other than I am going to try really hard to uh, uh, get a uh, woman rabbi to join our podcast next week. Um, I will say I'm married to a woman rabbi who I have as of yet been unsuccessful at convincing uh, to join our podcast. <laughs> well, that's okay. I can't convince my wife to even listen to it. So, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. My, uh, yeah. Yeah. My wife, too. My mother, on the other hand, listens to every episode. Oh, what a nice mom. My dad does, too. Hi, Dad. Hi, Mom. Uh, so, okay. All right. Well, now we know our parents and, 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 uh, at least one person at St. Anne's or Westchester listens to us. We can, uh, we can continue doing this with all happiness and grace. Uh, be good, dear listeners, and we will talk to you next week. Talk to you soon.